Welcome back to the Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer. With me again today is Emily Shirey. Good afternoon, Emily. Good afternoon, Grayson. Um, we've had a relatively eventful week or so around uh, around the kennels here, so pardon us if we've uh, been a bit behind on our podcast. Uh, we had a little bug run through my house, and uh, and it meant we got to spend a lot more time in the field playing catch-up with the dogs um, we have around here. Uh, this past Saturday, we did have a snake break, and that was a... Uh, that was a good event, a successful event. We had quite a few folks out. We had good weather, and we got a lot of dogs through. So, um, so happy about that. We have quite a few things coming up on our calendar. Uh, by the time this is out, we will have done our clinic with uh, GDIY and Scott Caldwell down at Rusty Gun- Guns Kennel. Um, looking forward to that, uh, and hopefully able to give you guys a report before too much longer. And of course, no. Head over to my website at www.losthighwaykennels.com and check out the events section uh, to see what we do have coming up. We'd love to see you guys at any of our future events. Um, And uh, I guess we'll get straight to it. Emily, what are we talking about today? Today we are going to discuss an overview of pointing dogs. An overview of pointing dogs, guys. So this is what I do uh, primarily to make a living. I train pointing dogs. Um, I do have an affinity for retrievers and spaniels as well. And I take plenty of those in, um, uh, for gun dog work, but, uh, I would say above 80% of the work I do is with pointing breeds. And, uh, uh, along with that, most of the work I do is with young dogs in their first year. And, uh, we've kind of, decided to market towards the companion gun dog owner, uh, meaning I'm looking for somebody out there that is, is uh, wanting to have a house pet and a capable hunting dog. Um, it just falls in line with my background and my own interests and uh, the type of dogs I like to work with. So, so that's, that's the angle we've taken. And um, we develop a, a lot of young dogs here and we help them get their start in the house. I know Emily, uh, does uh, something very similar. That's, that's her program. It's a little more obedience intensive, uh, it, it being that the dogs are actually living in the house with her. So today we're just, we're going to, you know, discuss the field portion, the bird dog portion. What is a bird dog? What is a pointing dog? You know, so when I say bird dog, I often mean pointing dog. So what are they? Um, historically, you know, how, how were they developed? Uh, what do we do as owners and trainers to kind of help them reach their full potential? Um, what can we avoid doing to, uh, to hinder them from achieving their full potential? And, um, you know, and we, there's various ways to skin this cat and we'll discuss how we do it. And, uh, and, you know, maybe, uh, kind of touch on some other beliefs in this, but, but certainly not, uh, we're not out here to, create any, uh, uh, you know, hate or consternation. We just want to, um, we want to help folks make the best dog they can for themselves. And our, I think as far as I'm concerned, the best thing we can possibly do is, um, is set the dog up for success and do our best to stay out of their way. And what I mean by that is, yeah, a lot of what a bird dog is, is a natural, thing they they um they have a predatory relationship 
with the game. They're a predator, birds of their prey. Um, th- without us, uh, they would be completely capable of becoming pointing dogs. Um, if there's a few things we'll do to help them get over the hump and become what we would consider finished bird dogs. Uh, but, you know, they were genetically selected by humans for characteristics they already displayed um, prior to us manipulating them for our general purposes, if that makes sense. Uh, so getting right into it, I want to talk about genetic selection, um, you know, and how not only from the earliest times or what we understand as the earliest times with pointing dogs, but how we have continued to refine these, um, these kind of genetic characteristics to work towards our advantage, uh, over the years and then into the modern era. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not as well versed in, in the depth of history of pointing dogs as others out there, uh, namely Craig Koshik. So if, if you're looking for a much more in-depth lesson on the history of pointing breeds in general, uh, especially getting into specific pointing breeds, um, I highly suggest you go out there and you listen to um, the Gun Dog Confidential podcast. Hunting Dog Confidential. Oh, sorry, Hunting Dog po- Confidential podcast with uh, Craig Koshik and Jennifer Wapinski. Um, and I and that's produced by Project Upland. Seriously, beautifully produced um, podcast. Uh, and, and if you haven't heard it yet, uh, it's certainly worth your while. Um, so, so getting straight away, I mean, what we, what we know a pointing dog to be is a dog, uh, that hunts and quests out and locates game, primarily birds. And when they do, uh, they pause and quote unquote point this bird until the, the hunter arrives to, uh, put the game in, in the air and shoot it flying. Um, and then, you know, some after that will retrieve that bird to hand. Others may sit there while the, uh, while another dog goes out there and retrieves it or the, the gunner goes and, uh, gets it for themselves. Um, this guys, this pointing instinct is a refined stalking instinct. This is what, if we watch wild canids, if we watch other predators, um, with various types of game, this is stalking. It's just, it's simply what they do, and what and often with uh, with ground nesting birds and ground dwelling birds uh, like our bobwhite quail or pheasant or uh, woodcock or, or all these other game birds that we hunt, they 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 primarily live on the ground and they move on the ground, and flight is kind of a last option for them, and so their their normal. Uh, instinct to avoid predation is to freeze up, wait till the last second, uh, and the predator closes in, and then they spring and hopefully create a lot of confusion that allows them to get away at the last second with a lot of speed and power. Um, you know, pointing dogs and, and other predators have uh, adapted to that escape mechanism by prey by becoming very, very good at stalking and being very stealthy and uh, and waiting to the very last second to pounce. So if we imagine like a fox and a vole that we often see where the fox creeps up and, and jumps in the air and springs uh, and onto the ground and pops up with a, with a little rodent in their mouth, um, 
you know, this is, uh, this is very similar, but for us with pointing dogs, what they do is we've taken that and through a little bit of training and through a lot of genetic selection, we've turned that stalk into something very, very long and slow and drawn out and, and, uh, essentially into a point. And they're going to wait until we come out there and help them finish the job. Does that sound, uh, sound like a pretty good, uh, explanation of what, what I'm trying to get at there, Emily? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it might just be, a good time to mention that a pointing instinct isn't something that we can bring about. So if a dog doesn't naturally point, so it's not something we can stop them into. So if you stop a dog, that's not a point. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, this is, this comes up often with us, you know, for, for, for me personally, and I'm, and I'm sure I'm speaking for Emily here, you know, when we train pointing dogs, uh, we don't do anything to get them to point other than expose them to birds. And we, manipulate the environment. And manipulate the environment. Absolutely well said. And that's our job. So we we know what the cover looks like. We know uh, exactly how big an area we have to work with. We hope we understand what the wind is going to do. We're going to do our best to expose our puppies and young dogs to birds in a way that, that number one, not afraid of them. Number two, understand that they are uh, uh, a part of their predator-prey relationship so that these birds are their natural prey and there's something that triggers immense drive in the dog, hopefully. Um, we make them bold enough to feel as if they have the ability um, to to handle these birds at will, meaning they can jump on them and beat them up and carry them around. I want before... I begin any training. I want a dog that really feels as if they uh, they have an absolute mastery of birds. They can they they can dominate any bird they want to, and they can possess it. And they, I don't care if they feel like they want to carry it off and eat all of them at first. Now this kind of flies in the face of some um, traditional beliefs around training, and that's and you know I'm and I don't. I don't mean for this to be anything that uh, that draws attention to uh, any any differences of opinion, but um, this is just the way I think of starting my young dogs. You know, some will call it drive building. I like them to be express, expressing uh, the the fullest drive that uh, that uh, God has graced them with before I begin manipulating the dog in the presence of game. So. What will hopefully begin to happen before I even start manipulating the dog in the presence of game is that the game becomes more and more elusive. So I may uh, aid the dog by making the game less elusive early, uh, pulling flight feathers, uh, etc., and letting the dogs uh, locate the game, spring the game, chase the game, catch the game, possess the game, um, eat the game if they want to, if necessary, run away with it, keep away from me. That's fine. That's, I'm not, I'm not here to challenge them for their bird at this point. As, as they become bolder and more confident and more and, ex, and better at expressing their drive for game, then I allow the game to become more elusive. The birds are going to get stronger. They're going to begin to fly away harder and eventually they're going to become completely elusive and the dogs are not going to be able to catch them. This should draw out the natural pointing instinct in the dog. Um, and once I see that happen, then we can, pardon me, 
um, then we can begin to uh, ask the dog to uh, to manage their behavior for us in such a way that uh, takes a little bit of the chase out of the game and takes a little bit of creep out of what what may be existing in in uh, in and around before the flush during the point, if that makes sense. But it's getting a little ahead of ourselves. We're getting really into the training side, and I still want to describe, um, you know, the the genetic selection of bird dogs. So just given that, we understand now at this point that they are a predator. Birds are their primary prey, specifically ground-dwelling birds that have that uh, propensity to lie in wait and freeze and spring at the last second. So we have this relationship between this specific predator with its specific prey, and they both act a specific way. Um, That has become, uh, has long been noted by hunters as some very valuable characteristics. So uh, not only are these dogs going out and, uh, boldly hunting cover, what we consider questing dogs. Um, they're making it easy for hunters to kind of uh, harvest this game. So in the earliest days, uh, we, before the uh, advent of, uh, uh, of gunpowder, that these dogs were helping hunters net these birds or bat these birds from the air. Uh, that's really cool. Again, uh, when Craig Koshik explains it, it's, uh, it's really, really exciting to listen to. So, um, but we often think of like a setter, a setter. When we talk about setting a bird, they would crouch and they would wait. And these hunters would come up and drape a net over the dog and the birds in front of them. And that's how they harvested the game. So from the earliest times, this is how, we began to select for these dogs. These dogs that had these characteristics were the one that made the gene pool, the ones we bred together and they got better and better at it. And as we began, um, uh, to, uh, to refine the technology we used to hunt, uh, namely guns and gunpowder, um, then we started shooting flying. It became a little more sport. And, uh, and so, now we're we're walking up to a dog that is no longer setting the game. Or if he is setting the game, he's setting the game in in such a manner that all we're going to do is fly the game and begin to shoot at it. Um, and and I think I think as you, you you know you read some of the historical works that talk about bird dogs, this is probably the beginning, in my opinion, of where style begins to come from and becomes important. We have sporting gentlemen, you know, uh, and I imagine on the moors of of, uh, of England and Scotland, um, and Wales, uh, or Ireland, and they're, you know, producing wild game. And these dogs are, you know, moving across the countryside quickly, um, and efficiently in such a way, uh, to, to really cover ground and find, you know, maybe birds that are sparsely populated. And then when they do, um, they want to be, they want them to be pleasing to the eye. And so we begin to get this intense style that matters. And so especially we think of pointers, you know, head held high, uh, testing the wind, pointing boldly, um, you know, and they had various ways of training them. They always talk, you know, often hear them talking about the dog dropping to the ground upon the shot. That's likely probably some training and 
Um, just a dog in wait, but uh, not often used to retrieve game. Um, as we move forward, we had we begin to have field trials and and eventually hunt tests, where uh, we we saw the development of. Um, other types of dogs like the versatile breeds. So in the, on the continent, uh, while in England, you know, we were seeing pointers and setters that were really uh, prized for their style and speed and power and grace. On the continent, they were starting to find that they maybe wanted some more practical type hunting dogs. And, um, and we got the develop, development of various breeds. And uh, these folks tended to uh, uh, value the retrieve a little more and maybe a little more gritty type of dog that would work in various types of cover, um, and not quite so refined. Um, and so today, um, I think probably about a hundred years on, uh, and, and a little longer. So maybe a, a century and a half of the kind of purebred dog movement where at the turn of the century, we were seeing a lot of dog shows and field trials and, a lot of enthusiasm for various breeds. We are, uh, we are the, you know, at, at, at a, a time that is the product of, of that time. So late 1800s, early 1900s, um, the development of, uh, of dog shows, bench shows, field trials, uh, hunting tests that were testing the versatile breeds on the continent, uh, all of that has brought us to where we are today with the various breeds we have to work with. Um, I don't concern myself quite as much when I'm developing a bird dog with what their background is as making them a bird dog. So, you know, even though all of them have their, uh, their, they're all have their specific strengths and weaknesses and each breed is supposed to maybe have their own, uh, a specific strength and maybe not be quite as refined in one area as another. I look at them all when they first arrive here. The first thing I need to do is make a bird dog out of you. And then we'll worry about the retrieve or we'll worry about the water work or the tracking or the trailing or any of that stuff. So for all intents and purposes, there's no difference between an English pointer, an English setter, a Brittany, a German short hair, a wire hair, a poodle pointer. As long as you're a pointing dog, you're going to get traded the same way if you show up here as a, um, you know, somewhere between a puppy and a young dog. Uh, we're going to expose you to birds. We're going to expose you to gunfire. We're going to hopefully make you uh, into the best natural version of yourself. And what I mean by make you into that, we're just going to get out of your way and allow you to become that. And we're going to put a handle on you. And we're going to send you home and hopefully get a really nice first hunting season under your belt. Uh, at which point your owner will decide if you come back to me for further training or if you, if there's enough dog there um, to be a, to make a good meat dog and a good house dog for the rest of that dog's life. And um, that's our objective here. Uh, we enjoy the, the finished training, but we make our, we make our living starting bird dogs and turning them into productive, efficient, effective hunting dogs. That sound right to you, Emily? It sure does. All right. Moving on from, uh, from the genetic selection field trials, we've talked about hunt test. We've kind of briefly discussed, and we'll get a little more in depth with those later. Um, but they're, you know, those are what we use to select breeding dogs. 
And so the, those are hopefully the, the best of the best are going to be out there winning field trials um, and passing at the highest levels hunt test and be uh, considered by the, the general hunting populace and bird hunting populace, um, you know, suitable brood stock. Um, what do bird dogs, I guess, what makes a bird dog, a bird dog or a pointing dog, a pointing dog, as opposed to other types of dogs we use, uh, and, and to aid us in bird hunting out there, namely any other thing that's not a pointing dog and it's out there putting upland birds in the air for you, it's going to be a flushing dog. So we have, when we think of that in America, we think of, you know, labs are often used retriever and retrieving breeds are used quite often as I would say, kind of looked at as the most utilitarian breed probably in this country and used for everything. Um, and they can be absolutely, uh, invaluable as, as bird dogs, uh, you know, and, and on various species of game. And then we have the spaniels that are really designed to be flushing dogs and get into cover and really get birds in the air efficiently and effectively. Um, the difference between those types of dogs and our dogs, the first and foremost is going to be range a pointing dog because it's going to wait for uh for its handler to show up and harvest that game it can get out there and it can hunt um outside of the range of the gun a flushing dog really can't uh, because they're going to put that bird in the air they need to be close to the handler so i would say intuitively it's always made sense to me and and i counterintuitively this has actually probably been proven wrong on several occasions but you should be in a in a more sparsely populated area of game where you have fewer birds it would it would stand to reason that a pointing dog would give you more opportunities um to cover more ground and to get out there and i think when we're dealing with good handlers and good dogs this probably will almost always hold up and and uh and and kind of be the rule uh, exceptions to that are going to be in certain types of cover that just don't lend themselves to pointing dogs. It's hard for a pointing dog. It doesn't make a lot of sense for them. And again, there's exceptions to this rule, um, but to dig into every little piece of cover and work it very thoroughly. Oftentimes what we see is our bird dogs, especially in America and the way we hunt over here, we have objectives, you know, the agricultural fields we hunt over here, um, the edges of those are where we're going to find our wild game for the most part or transitional cover. And so a good bird dog in America is going to learn to look out over the terrain, look out over the cover and recognize objectives. And they're going to learn you're going to watch a dog on the prairie is going to understand how to get to the leeward side of cover to the downwind side and, and produce and make game. Um, where a spaniel, you know, if we get in a in a river bottom that's just full of very very thick cover, they're just going to bust cover and they're going to stay in range. And what we're going to do is we're going to know where the likely places for uh, uh, for our birds to be is going to be, and we're going to put our dogs in the best situation possible uh, to be able to produce that game. As far as the spaniels are concerned, the the bird dogs should give us the opportunity to kind of ease up take a little more a relaxing approach ourselves and let the dog get out there and, uh, and do the work and do it efficiently and stay on. If it doesn't need to get in the briar patch, just go show me that the birds are in the briar patch and we'll figure out how to get them out of there and get them shot for you. So, um, as far as hunting is concerned, they're going to quest. They're going to get out there. They're going to range as far as you're comfortable allowing them to range. What kind of dog you have is, is, uh, 
is certainly going to, you know, lend itself to the type of range you're going to have. You know, we, we often think of the big ranging dogs in this country being these all age bred, um, pointers and setters, you know, and so there's a tradition of field trialing on horseback in this country and hunting from horseback with, with really big ranging, uh, British dogs. And when I say British dogs, I mean English pointers, English setters. Really, in this country, they've been bred here um, for so long that they're pointers and setters. They're as American as they are uh, British. They just uh, are considered the British breeds when we're speaking about them on the global stage. So, uh, but, you know, America certainly has its own tradition of breeding and training these dogs in such a way that um, they've been, they've been really bred specifically to North America and, uh, that we probably, I, I would, I would venture to say that we have the, the country to, at the very least, allow these dogs. Um, so when we think about being out West in the prairies of, uh, of the Dakotas and Canada, uh, to really stretch their legs and, and be as bold and big as, as they can be. And we'll select often from the biggest, boldest, hardest running dogs out there, the most powerful. And that's that all age, uh, all age class blood that's out there. Now that's not to say that those dogs can't be fantastic foot hunters. I've seen, um, I've certainly seen examples of some of these dogs that are bred on the prairie coming out East and, uh, and hunting with you on foot and being very gentle dogs that are handle like a Cadillac in the woods and, uh, and produce birds for the gun. And so that can happen. So they, they often get a bad reputation. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't always hold up to be true. I I've seen, uh, uh, you know, some very nice pointers and setters for foot hunting. I've hunted behind a few of them that were hard to keep up with and that were a little, uh, a little maybe too bold for that type of work. But, um, again, there's exceptions to every rule. And I think we tend to overgeneralize when we talk about these things quite often. Um, of course, you know, that said some of the continental dogs were bred specifically for foot hunters and, uh, and for certain types of game. Personally, I like French Britneys. Um, I breed the type of dog that would be considered a prototypical French Brittany. And what I mean by that, I breed that is that's the type of dog I'm looking for, for my, for brood stock, for my kennel. I want them to be very bold. I don't want them to be afraid to challenge the terrain and, and the cover, but they must always be in contact with me. I don't need a dog or I don't want a dog that's going to make me think about handling them while I'm out hunting. I just want to go have a relaxing day. And that dog, hopefully, will uh will just remain in contact with me uh without any effort whatsoever if uh if the dog's not capable of doing that then they likely won't make uh won't make the the cut here but again i value bold i value far reaching so it's not i don't want a bootlicker but i do want a dog that uh that can get out there and hunt without ever losing touch losing touch so um i think that my you know, my dogs are certainly not the only ones capable of doing that. And, uh, and you know, sometimes we find dogs within on, in my breed that aren't capable of doing that. Some of them get out there, they hunt too big, they lose touch and they're, uh, they're too independent they're hunting for themselves. And I think that can oftentimes be a, 
uh, a characteristic of pointing dogs that, um, that kind of comes with the territory. We breed for independence. We want a dog that's not constantly looking for direction from us. They need to be able to get out there and they need to be able to locate game on their own. So I think there's a fine line between being completely independent and doing your work. Um, but having, being able to engage your handler just enough to be effective, um, and to be pleasant to be around, but, or being a straight up renegade runoff dog that doesn't care about your handler at all, which, which exists. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Emily? Well, the cooperation aspect is really important for pointing dogs too. Um, You know, with them being out and independent and away from us, it would be very easy for them to bust up all the birds they want. So the cooperation component is really important for them to wait for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's (laughs) pointing dogs are, they're, they're notorious, I think, from a training perspective of not being deeply engaged with a handler, you know, as a dog trainer first and a bird dog trainer second, you know, I came from a world where I remembered, man, when you got a hound dog or a bird dog, you knew, or say a Husky or something, right? There's these type (laughs) of dogs that come with this reputation of being like, you know, oftentimes too independent, not desirous of, of engaging the handler or being trainable or what we may call biddable or things like that. So within, you know, within the bird dog breeds, there are types and there are specific breeds that maybe, um, you know, have, have been selected to be a little more engaging than others. But again, you know, I, it, it always comes back to one thing for me, which is, you know, there are, there's more variation within the breeds than there is amongst them. And I've had plenty of setters and pointers here um, that would just as soon out of drive, sit there with their head on your lap and get an ear scratch or work for a piece of kibble or even play ball with you sometimes, Um, which will bring us to my next point. You know, we talk about the bird dogs not being engaging and being a little too independent. So I want you to think of this in direct contrast to our retrievers and spaniels, which are extremely engaging mm-hmm. and uh, and oftentimes to the point of codependence yep. you know on the on on the uh kind of on when the pendulum swings a little too far so um you know if if a if if you're thinking about maybe purchasing a puppy right now and you're thinking that like what what uh criteria are important to you on your new dog and you're and you're down and you haven't decided whether you want a pointing breed or a retrieving breed or a flushing breed um it, it's important to note that by nature your pointing breeds are going to be more independent they're going to be uh in a lot of ways i think that can often make them easier to start and easier to hunt too because they really need less um, refinement from you for specific tasks. You, oftentimes you turn a pointing dog loose, you give them a few bird contacts. And if you stay out of their way, you got a dog that you can take hunting. Uh, they may not go retrieve that bird for you. Um, but, uh, this, this often, and this is going to be for anybody that's ever heard my voice on a podcast or in person for that matter. Um, there's a story I always tell, and I'm going to, uh, grace you with it once more that when I, uh, when I was leaving the, the detection dog world and considering starting my own business, my grandfather was still living 
And I went to him to talk to him about it. And I said, Grandpa, you know, I think I'm going to start my own business training dogs. And he said, what kind of dogs are you going to train? And I said, uh, bird dogs. And he said, that's a, the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, uh, and he said, you know, a bird dog is a bird dog. You turn it loose and it's either a bird dog or it ain't. And, uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. And we forget that. And we try so hard often to train our dogs to be bird dogs. And what we really need to do is train bird dogs, not train dogs to become bird dogs or to be bird dogs, if that makes sense. So, you know, we need to expose them to game. And in, in grandpa's time, there was plenty of that around here. We don't have wild birds like that anymore. And so we do need to understand our role when it comes to starting dogs on pin raised birds or using launchers and pigeons and things of that nature, what can we do to best mimic nature is, is my objective. And, um, and usually what that means is finding very healthy pin raised quail around here um, and allowing them to be uh, very elusive when the time comes and to stay out of the way. And then when we start working pigeons and launchers, it's mostly about, um, it's mostly about knowing when to launch that bird. And oftentimes we wait too long. We want to see our dog point. Uh, we can always launch that bird too late. We can never launch it too early, right? So don't be afraid to push that button and let that bird get near. Don't wait to see your dog point. If you feel like he's in too close a proximity to that launcher, well, let's not pop it in his face. So let's not let him get there in the first place, right? We create these boogers and things, uh, by, and that's in, in, uh, the, the famous words of Mo Lindley. Yeah. But keep, keep in mind that we're trying to mimic a wild bird and, um, and, and the smartest thing you can do with a launcher is have an imaginary ring around that thing that maybe say is at 15 yards, 20 yards. And if your dog's not in odor and, and pointing by the time it uh, it crosses that threshold, then get that bird in the air and get it gone. Uh, it's fine. Your dog your dog will not. It, it's not going to create any issues if that bird leaves early every time. But if you wait too long, you can. So that's just something to note. Um, I I didn't want to get too deep into the use of launchers and things, but I think I, if there's something I see you know, one of the, uh, of, a, of a few different things that I, I, I think need rehabbed often when they get here is people that have used launchers and they want to see their dog point so badly that they drag it into the scent cone and they stop it and then they launch it and the dog doesn't understand its relationship with the launcher at that point. So your job as, as the, uh, as the button pusher on that thing is to just get that bird out of town before the dog has any opportunity, uh, to, to have a bad interaction with it. And then, you know, as it gets, as the dog becomes more aware of of its relationship with with that specific technology and the birds that come with it, um, it it'll get better. So, um, just get it get the bird out of town and and lay back and you know get more reps in. Um, what do you think, Emily? Where where should we go from here? Is there anything else you wanted to speak on for retrievers? Um, I, I, well, I can say maybe not retrieving breeds, but I can, let's talk about retrieving in the bird dog, retrieving in the pointing dog. So, um, pointing dogs as opposed to retrievers and opposed to spaniels because of that lack of engagement, or maybe 
the lack of engagement is due to, to something that has, you know, more to do with this on a visceral level. But, um, we, we often don't see what I call ball drive and pointing breeds. So, you know, where you might take a tennis ball out with your lab or your Springer and, and throw that thing until that dog could fall over from exhaustion. It's pretty rare to find that in a pointing dog. Now, and it does exist. I've seen it. Um, we, I think I've got a puppy right now that, um, certainly maybe not as obsessive, uh, with the ball drive as my lab, but plenty, plenty to work with. And it's always nice when we have that. It's really nice when that comes with an abundance of pointing instinct too, because I think, I think most people that have been training pointing dogs for, for a long time will tell you that I think anecdotally, I think we can draw a correlation between an abundance of point and a, uh, and a lack of retrieve. And I'm not sure exactly why that would come together. Maybe, and I mean, I've got, I've got some, some theories or a theory in particular, um, that they're just, they're just kind of, um, kind of opposing natural instincts. You know, if I, if I'm, you know, when I think of something that retrieves, I think of something very bold. When I think of something that points, I think of something very cautious. And so I could be completely off base here and I'd be interested in hearing what anybody else has to say, but I would say, and I haven't kept any data on this over the years, but I would say, you know, when I look at the dogs that tend to come in here and oftentimes it's those British breeds, you know, I get a setter that the very first time they smell a bird, they point it without sight pointing it. You know, um, it's just something in there spare and they point hard. Uh, oftentimes those dogs have zero, zero interest in even picking, maybe even picking up a warm bird that, that they just saw fall in front of it. Um, but certainly not much interest in picking up a tennis ball. Whereas, you know, that short hair, man, you know, let, let me just pour a poor breed that may get a bad rap out there, but any of these, like, especially the more esoteric versatile breeds that, that really came up in these versatile systems. Um, both of the Munsterlanders come to mind. You might see an abundance of retrieve in those dogs, ball drive. Um, and you might see very soft pointing instinct. And that may come from the fact that wherever they come from, they're a more practical hunting dog and they're not tested in that regard. You know, the, the, the point just isn't tested as hard. So, and maybe it's not as important, you know, maybe what they need is just a dog that's cautious, stalks in, gives them just enough time to get set up for game and then gets the game in the air. You know, the Europeans and in each region in Europe seems to have its own kind of, kind of system for how they hunt with their pointing dogs. Some Kool-Aid, they walk in there and they flush the bird together with the dog, uh, at which point the dog stops to flush. Some will, um, encourage that dog to get in there and flush and then, you know, and maybe follow on with the retrieve or stop to flush, but they're not going in with the handler as they would in the Kool-Aid. I know in the Scandinavian countries, they have dogs that actually like report back. They'll go point game. And if the handler doesn't arrive pretty soon, that dog leaves the game, goes and gets the handler and then brings it back. So, you know, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine trying to train that. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure there's, there's ways to do it, but it sure sounds, um, you know, it sounds like a handful to me from here. So, you know, um, that all that being said to say this, that, you know, there, 
you don't, because of the independent nature, because of the hard pointing instinct, that cautious, refined stalking instinct, you know, I don't expect to see a ton of retrieve in my dogs. With my, with the dogs I breed, it's important to me. I want to see a natural retrieve. I want to see them point, but I'm looking to strike a really fine balance. And so hopefully I see a dog with lots of point, lots of style, and lots of retrieve, but it's a rare combination. So just something worth noting, you know, again, maybe I'm way off base there. And believe me, I understand there are exceptions to the rule. I look for it every day. It's just something I've noticed, a correlation between hard point and and low retrieve over the years. Um, uh, So, you know, that, and I think that all kind of it falls in line with what we were talking about earlier with engagement in the retrievers, the spaniels versus the bird dogs in terms of just that general, um, engaging, you know, when I think of a trainer's dog, either the herding breeds or a retriever just automatically come to mind because they are right there. And they're like, what can I do boss? What can I do? Throw the ball, give me food, whatever. Where you're pointing dogs like, Hey man, are you going to give me that food? Okay. You're not, I'll I'll just, I'm going to go over here and do this thing and find this bird or chase this squirrel or do whatever. Um, so, and, but again, those, you know, those natural inclinations to do those things are what make them great and what we want them for. Um, we've, you know, I guess I did not keep this in the type of order I was hoping for. Um, I do want to kind of talk briefly because we've already touched on it, but I'm going to basically talk about what I do to start a bird dog and how, what I consider finishing a bird dog. So the steadiness process, we're not going to, you know, so keeping retrieve out of it, if it's just bird dog work, it's, how do I get from this puppy that I bring out, um, chase just loose walks around around the farm where they're exposed to game and they begin to point birds on their own and they're chasing and maybe catching and they're starting to hear some gunfire uh, to that finished product, which I'm taking to a field trial that's uh, steady to wing and shot. Um, and in our case, wing shot fall and retrieve on command, but really steady to wing and shot. Um, how do I take, go from that, that baby that's doing it on its own, um, to a dog that's doing it from a disciplinary perspective where he's not giving chase, um, and he's not creeping or putting the bird in the air. Uh, so for me personally, it's, we'll go through the entire, what happens when the dog starts here, when it goes home and then it comes back, what is broke, um, and and how we how we get there so puppy for me um on bird exposure uh oftentimes we'll show them a dead bird first just to show get show them what a bird is they can be i don't i prefer them to probably be 12 weeks and up in this phase i don't invite dogs here at that that age that young cuz i i really want them i find that we have some fear periods, you know, specifically between 12 and 16 weeks that we need to worry about. And by the time you're at 16 weeks, you're so close, you're, you're teething hard normally. And you're so close to being out of teething. I normally ask folks to just wait, give, wait till you're at the end of five months, six months, and you got your dog in their big kid mouths and they're beginning to mature. That's a good time for me to see them. And if that happens sometime between the end of, January or February and the, you know, October, 
then all the better. Because now we have uh, this young dog that's in its before its first real hunting season. So if you're a six month old dog and it's Jan, you know, the end of February, even if you've had a bird season, um, it, it's not, you're, you haven't been, in my opinion, big enough or old enough to, uh, to experience that in, in, in such a way that you're becoming a bird dog yet. Now, of course there's exceptions to that rule. Plenty of people have gone out and killed wild birds over their four month old. That can happen. That's great. That's fantastic. That's, that's not what I'm getting at. I mean, even for those folks, they're not considering that, that dog they're finished or, or even well-seasoned bird dog. It's just something cool that happened, and they had a great opportunity, and they, uh, um, they seized it. Uh, but for us, now we have this young dog. I, I prefer people not go shooting around their dog before they bring him to me. Um, if I, I, and for me, I'd prefer they didn't expose him to birds before they bring him to me. Give him, you know, take him, uh, let him be a puppy, Enjoy them, socialize them, take them out into town with you. I, of course, make sure they're well vaccinated first and, um, you know, but let them see the world. Let them experience the world. Let them drag a check cord. Um, let them get used to the weight. Let them get used to playing with other dogs. But, you know, they need to see rocks and streams and, uh, you know, people and other dogs. And, and by the time they come here, Hopefully we've got a well-adjusted, confident puppy. We we begin to show it birds. It's going to go from a dead bird to a uh, uh, a very limited mobility bird that's that's living, but um, not able to flog the puppy or spook the puppy too much. To one that can move around a little bit more and is a little more mobile, but still a little limited in, in its ability to hurt the pup. Uh, to the point where I start to see the the puppy get bold and and uh, tough and feel powerful and dominating these birds. At, the, at which point the birds are going to become tougher as well, and eventually um, the birds will be able to flap and maybe flog. And we're going to start to show them some pigeons after we've shown them some quail like this. And then eventually I've got these young dogs out and they're walking on a free walk with me across the farm. And there's um, completely unrestricted quail out there, no clip feathers, no, nothing to limit their mobility. And they're escaping the puppy and the puppy is hopefully now beginning to stalk and point and do these things. At which point then we're going to, we're going to consider introducing the gunfire. Um, we have, we have various ways of doing this, a couple of various ways. If I've got a dog that's really bold and hard and chase from a distance, we'll be shooting while they're in chase. Um, if I have a dog that's a little trepidatious, we'll be a lot more intentful. Or a dog that I recognize as being maybe a little more sensitive will be a lot more intentful in the way we introduce the gun. So, um, you know, it, if, it, if it comes down to it and I'm worried about the dog's sensitivity, I'm going to introduce the gun as a, uh, as a predictor of, uh, of drive-triggering bird action. And so... Uh, I don't want to get too deep into that, but uh, for those of you um, that have maybe uh, watched the perfect gunshy fix uh, from John Hahn, I, I like his ideas. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so oftentimes I'll use that kind of system or method to, uh, to introduce gunfire with the bird. I want um, to create a classically conditioned response between the gunfire which will initially start at such a distance that it's, it's barely noticeable. 
um, as it's creeping in, but I want that to elicit the dopamine response of the bird. So we've already, you know, you understand if you've listened to the first two uh, episodes in this series, what, what a classically conditioned response is. So just, uh, you can uh, draw a pretty simple, um, understanding of, uh, of what we're doing there. Yeah. Shot predicts the bird flushing, uh, pre- predicts the chase, predicts the cash catch possession, all those things that, that means so much to a bird dog. Um, so beyond there, now I have the ability to go shoot birds out for my dogs. And for me at that point, once my dog's pointing, whether it be for long periods of time and allowing me to get around the front or whether it just be flash pointing, but it's, but it's also exposed to gunfire and I now have the ability to shoot birds out for my dog, I can use the power of successive approximation to get what I want. And what I mean by that is today you point for three seconds, you hold it, I get close, I'll shoot that bird out for you. But tomorrow I'm going to increase that criteria. You're going to have to let me do a little better than that. And so every day I'm expecting a little more from you as the dog um, in regards to duration on point and what you allow from me as the handler coming in to flush that bird. If you don't handle the bird as well as you did yesterday and a little better, I'm not shooting it for you. And uh, and eventually I'm going to begin to limit your chase as well. And so with good hard flying pointing, I mean, uh, good hard flying birds, um, the dog's not going to catch them. And that's that's what we I need to know, right? So even if he, he can chase it to his heart's content, once I've seen enough of that, once the dog's holding that point pretty well, I've already got a handle on my dog. He's been collar conditioned to this point. For me, I begin to limit the chase as the dog gets older um, with a recall. And, and so I need to know where my dog is in drive. I need to understand his ability to cap. This is not something that happens overnight. One day, it's not like I'm going out, I've shot a few birds for him. He's chasing really hard. And then one day I just stomp on the collar and, you know, what he's at five or 10 feet into his chase and hammer him. It's, I'm starting to bring the collar into the field while he's in drive. I'm starting to turn him. I want, he's, he's collar conditioned to the point that there's no novelty in the stimulation. Um, It's not, it's not new. He understands the sensation. He knows how to turn it on. He knows how to turn it off. And I'm not going to challenge him in all out chase and all out drive. I'm going to recognize, okay, hey man, he's beginning to let off this chase. I'm going to turn you and bring you home to me. Eventually what's going to happen guys is the dog is going to anticipate this and he's going to put less effort into his chase. Um, to the point when the time comes and I feel like he's bold enough and he's had enough retrieves and enough birds shot out for him. And I begin the breaking process that I can take the anticipation of the chase completely away from him. For me personally, I always want to be able to bring it back. I think of the chase as one of my greatest tools and greatest assets as a bird dog trainer. So I always want the ability to allow the chase, but I also eventually want the ability to manage the chase to the point where I can take it away from you completely without, without hurting drive, especially without taking any style out of the dog. Um, and if they're always, if they're, if it's in the back of their mind that I may release them to chase odds are, um, they're going to cap with more intensity and more style. So I know we've covered a little bit of impulse control and drive capping in the past. So I, hopefully that stuff is becoming clear to you guys. So that's, that's how I work it. In this modern era, we have e-collars. Most times, I'm going to taper that chase back to the point 
that I have the ability to to have the dog anticipate me removing the chase and waiting to to act on their, their own impulse to chase and and looking to come through me for permission for that. Um and at that point I have a dog that's now broke to the wing, steady to the flush, right? So can watch the bird fly away without giving chase. I've shot a few birds out for it, so I'm expecting it's probably going to have the impulse to break on shot. But at that point, I do a lot of back and forth where we've talked about before where I use my, I'm often using a, a, a Schlager stick type whip or a Schutzen type whip um, to, to crack and simulate gunfire. And I'll start at this point when my dog is, has a, you know, has had a lot of birds shot out, has a strong chase. I'm going to start taking that shot and I'm going to put it out of order. And what I mean by that is they may hear a shot while they're on point. If they break the bird leaves, um, and that's going to be a distance. So that's going to be, you know, whatever kind of stimulation I can give this dog with that whip. Um, and I'm cracking as I come in to put this up. Now, mind you guys, between the time that I've started shooting birds out for this dog and the time that I'm beginning to limit chase uh, or or the start the quote-unquote breaking process, there may be a full season of hunting in between. I may have sent this dog home with their handler and now they're coming back in the spring of the following year and they're now they're wanting to break it out and take it to field trials or, or try to put a UT on their dog or a master hunter on their dog. And so that's that's how we get to where we're at. Um, so I, I, I'm now getting my dog to anticipate being stopped anticipate not not chasing i'm putting the shot out of order uh once the shot's out of order and it and it's not triggering um not triggering a chase or not triggering breaking from that point then usually i can shoot after the flush and it no longer triggers the chase at this point i can stop my dog one thing guys you may notice that i haven't said in here is i've taught my dog whoa right um it's that's inconsequential to me at this point. I'm going to teach it. I'm going to have the power to stop my dog whenever I want to stop my dog. Uh, but I don't need it. And I'm not using it to deal with the creep. Most dogs, once I have managed and have complete control of the chase, in my opinion, the great majority of dogs are not creeping. If I still have creep. If I still have the type of dog that's willing to creep in there, push that bird up and not chase and just watch it fly away, well, that's that's a special case and that's going to require a little bit of work in front of the flush. Most dogs are not going to require that type of work in front of the flush. Um, so I'm not saying I don't teach woe. I do. It's a I teach a stop and stand. Uh, I want to be able to arrest uh, motion quickly and I want the dog to offer duration until it's released every time. But that's not an it's not an in, an, an integral integral part of my breaking process. The, the handling, managing the chase, in my opinion, is where I take the creep out and I'm and I create my steadiness. If I again if I have to insert some sort of discipline into that sequence with some stop and stand, I will I'm going to try everything in my power not to do that. Guys, you're going to see 
your problems arise with pressure in front of the flush. This is where I see dogs blinking. This is where I see sensitivity issues created. So in my opinion, it's, this is a last resort. I don't touch a dog. Um, I don't, whether it be on the check cord or with the e-collar in front of the flush, once the point is established until I've given every effort I can through managing chase, if that makes sense. So, you know, um, stop to flush is an important part of this process as well that we've kind of glossed over. Uh, I like to use stop to flush in conjunction with backing drills a lot. And this is where I start teaching the stop and stand. So I personally, I, I have borrowed most of what I do through my steadiness and braking process from the West Gibbons method. Um, I, I would not call myself a devotee and I don't think it's fair to those that really practiced a method to call myself a practitioner because they, the, there is a real beauty to what the guys that are, are real West Gibbons, uh, Lindley devotees, uh, to what they do with a check cord and launchers and, um, you know, and, and box flushers, uh, the Higgins traps, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, a pinch collar. It's, it's a fascinating and effective method. And I, I think it's a very safe method to start with. So I often recommend people start there in West Gibbons. Um, now I drop the check cord. I let the dogs do a lot more chasing. I use a lot more e-collar than a lot of those folks are going to use. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, I think it's a safe and effective system. And I like to recommend people buy the book training with Mo by Martha Greenlee. And I often use that as like a textbook for my clients. And I just let them know, Hey, this is not, I don't do everything that these folks do. Um, but if you do, there's a good chance you're going to be successful. Um, and that's not to knock any of the other programs or methods out there. There are some super successful programs out there. I'm just of the belief that, uh, the West Gibbons method, I think, I think it lends itself to having people err on the side of caution and nature as far as having the birds be the real teachers of the dogs, if that makes sense. So, you know, we're getting, we're getting over an hour here. I've talked a lot about what I do, what the process is, the way I think about bird dogs. Um, yeah, I listened to a podcast, uh, last week with Todd Agnew. It was the uh, Lone Duck podcast. Todd Agnew is a, a top Spaniel trainer in the country. Um, and, you know, you hear a lot of, between whether it be Spaniels, retrievers, bird dogs, any type of high-level com- competition training, you hear a lot of parallels in the way pros think. And one thing Todd Agnew said is that, you know, people are often talking about steadiness and they're talking about sitting to the flush and uh, not breaking and things like that. And, and he said, man, I don't, we're not going to discuss that. I don't discuss that with people. That's the stuff that gets you to the dance. Um, you know, if you're going to be showing your dog in a UT or you're going to be trialing, uh, that's your baseline, you know? So, that I know it, there's a lot of mystery around steadiness when you're, when it's your first bird dog. Um, but understand it's, it's, it's a very achievable goal and you don't need to be in a hurry about it. And if you feel like you're creating conflict with your dog, then just take your foot off the gas pedal and give us a call, contact another professional in your area that has, has put a lot of dogs through the process and go, 
go get some experience um, is with with some help. It's not a race to the finish line, right? It you know, um, it doesn't matter whether you get your dog dead stone broke at sixteen months or at four years of age. Uh, what what matters is that you don't hurt your relationship with your dog and that you have an effective hunting dog. So, you know, don't, don't get hung up with, with the little stuff and don't get, don't let stress and frustration dictate the way you act out there. Um, it's your job to protect, protect your dog's drive, to build your dog's drive. So always err on the side of caution, always err on the side of, uh, low stress. For me personally, that means leaving some chase in a dog a lot of times, um, and not, uh, you know, stifling or oppressing, um, expression of drive. So, uh, that's not again to knock. There are people out there that have never let a dog chase and they're fantastic trainers and, and, um, and I'm not, here to argue with their success or, or their traditions of training. You know, these are simply my opinions, but what I would say is the, the, the more you allow your dog to be a dog, express their bird doggedness, the less risk you run of, um, of harming that relationship or putting some kind of booger in your dog's head. That's going to prevent it from being effective for you in the field. So again, I know this was a bit scattered, Hopefully it makes sense to folks. I've got some notes we're going to put online. Please check them out. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. Emily, do you have anything to add to what we said today? Maybe just in summary that genetics are really the foundation of everything with bird dogs and why they do the things that they do. And the more that we can understand that and work with it versus against it, the better off we'll be and the better off our dogs will be. Awesome. Well, guys, again, you know, run over to www.losthighwaykennels.com. Check out all the things uh, I have going on over there. Um, Emily, if you would like to uh, to give a quick plug of anything you have going on. I know you've been putting out a lot of blog entries lately, and they're they're really, really good. So I'd, uh, I'd certainly... Uh, recommend anybody out there listening, go, ch- go check out Emily's blog. Uh, I'm get I get a lot from it and I enjoy keeping up with it. Thank you, Grayson. All right, guys, contact us. If there's anything we can do for you, uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.